Lord, you're kind, and uh, thank you for Psalm 73. Thank you for Asaph and what he went through and how that uh, is, impacts me today. Uh, praying for your favor and grace right now, please. Thank you for everyone that's here. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, by way of reminder, the Psalms are broken up into five books. You're probably aware of that. And tonight we're going to begin with Psalm 73, which is the first psalm in book three. And uh, there are five books. Uh, scholars really are not sure why there are five books. Uh, they don't know. The one, the one conclusion they make that they think is, is reasonably plausible is that it matches the five books of Torah. And that, that the five books of Torah, <clears throat> the Torah, the five books of Moses, and uh, which which certainly makes sense, and, and 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 there's no reason to really not consider that as an option. So um, a couple comments about the ending of Psalm 72, though. There's an interesting entry at verse 20, and it says the prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended. An interesting hey Andrew, an interesting comment. And so technically, <coughs> the psalm itself ends at verse 19. That's when the psalm ends. But someone, a scribe, someone uh, thought it very appropriate to say, this is how we're going to tie off a section of, of the, the psalms that are commonly assigned to David and we're shifting gears to some other authors. And so that comment is inserted. And so uh, beginning book three, Psalm 73. So who is Asaph or Asaph? Um, it's interesting. He's kind of an unknown character. And then in Chronicles uh, 15, 1 Chronicles 15, it says, David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives as the singers uh, with the musician, with the musical instruments and harps and lyres and cymbals, etc., to play sounds of joy. Uh, and, and it says that this relative was chosen, uh, Asaph. And in the Hebrew, that means to gather together. We're going to kind of pull it together, get it, in, get it in one spot. So this is how he's introduced, but something unusual happens. In First Chronicles 16, there's a shift. And there's not a lot of time between these events. But... As David is building a team around, a worship team around the Ark of the Covenant. At this point, he promote, David himself promotes Asaph as the chief. So he goes from a, a guy whose relative appoints him to just sing, sing and help out with musical instruments. He goes from that to being promoted by David himself as the chief minister to guide the process of worship around the Ark of the Covenant. And he's responsible for celebration and to give uh, songs and worship that have to do with thanks, giving, and praise to the God of Israel. Really fascinating. So he goes from this relatively obscure person to singing in the choir, if you could think of it that way, to now he's the chief, specifically focusing on the ark. Now, if we could, can we appreciate that for a bit? How important is the Ark of the Covenant to Israel? Be all end all. Be all end all. It's 
In fact, if you had the ark, you had the favor of God. And that was even seen when the Philistines captured it from Israel, took it to their territory, and God judged the Philistines because they had the ark and gave them a plague of mice. And some translations said a plague where their body was negatively harmed. They were showing symptoms of illness because they had the ark with them. And then there's a dramatic story of getting the ark back to Israel. Beautiful story of God's grace and favor. So to say that he's the chief leading the worship team around the ark, that's a big deal. Um, he's not saying, hey, uh, Asaph, what, can, would, would you mind being the chief guy that kind of guards the coffee pot? Can you do that for us? We really need somebody to do caffeine for us. You know, we, we chuckle at that a bit. But I'm telling you, to, to really supervise the worship at the ark, wow. Well, it's interesting. I, have, he, I don't know if this is sequential <coughs> or uh, how these other characters are represented next mm-hmm. to him, but it's a second to him, Zechariah, then Jael, then, then... Are those, like, lower ranks, or are they alongside him in terms of importance in the text? They're going to be of lesser importance because they're naming him first, yeah. and they're giving him the title of chief. So in an, in an honor schema, he is superior to them. First among peers, certainly their colleagues, certainly of all that, but he's in charge. Well, they gave him the symbols. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Bronze symbol. Yeah, in fact, there's another reference where uh, it, it says that Asaph and his team would sound the symbol in unison all at the right time. They would hammer that thing hard, very, very loud. All right, so you appreciate some of the backstory? Yeah, All right. I'm assuming that he is also not only leading the service, but responsible for the security of the army. Would you go that far? Yeah, and I can't answer that. Justin, you want to jump in on that? Um, they, they did have security details uh, on the temple team. They had men in charge of the doors, the gates, and that would certainly represent security. But at this point, Terry, I don't know. It's a great question. I really don't know. So, all right. So let's dig in here. Um, uh, Asaph, the one who gathers, is the designated author of Psalm, uh, Psalm 73 to 83. <clears throat> all right. Let's look now at, at the beginning of Psalm 73. It reads, God certainly is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. So, develop an idea here. Verse 1 is so stereotypical of the lawful mindset, the covenant mindset in Israel that God blesses people who do good things. If you are obedient, if you are righteous, if you're pure in heart, if your behaviors are pure, God will bless you, okay? That is a two-dimensional view of morality, which, which we grab a hold of today, and we, we commonly think in those, those terms. However, there is a third room, and that is the grace room, and you actually will see this uh, in Psalm 73. It's really interesting how this plays out. But for now, he's beginning with a very Israeli idea, God is good to those that obey him. The implication, he is not good to those that don't obey him. 
That's the implication. And so here's what happens. Verse 3, he, he begins to confess that he has been engaging in kind of temporal comparison, uh, comparing his world with the, his peers. Jealousy is a part of this. And God, Jehovah is cast in really unfair terms. He says this, For I was envious, there's jealousy, I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there is no pain in their death, in their belly is fat. They are not in trouble like other people, nor are they tormented together with the rest of mankind. Therefore, arrogance is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. <clears throat> their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart overflow. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and abundant waters are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Wow. So he's making some very detailed comparisons about how his life is going versus their life. At this place of blessing. Okay. Where there is abundant water. Gotcha. Yeah, the place of prosperity. Yeah. So verse thirteen. Something clicks. And there's, a, there's an admission of error of this temporal comparison and jealousy. Surely in vain, reek, surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak this way, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I, thought, when I thought of understanding this, it was troublesome in my sight. There's a few things we really need to appreciate. Reek, surely in reek, in vain, uh, that can be translated as emptiness. Surely there's nothing in it for me. All of this effort has been for naught. I have kept myself, my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence, all for nothing. That's the conclusion he makes when he compares himself in his life against the life of the wicked. So is the tone of that sarcasm? In fact, that he's saying in vain, I've kept my heart pure. Like he's almost mocking the act of purity. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with some scholars that, that I've looked at and say, no, this isn't sarcasm. He's not using rhetoric and, uh, as we might commonly expect. He's actually being honest. Um, so let's borrow an idea at this point, Patch. It'd be a good, good thing to do. This is a guy that went from the no-name guy in Israel 
a relative picks him to sing in the choir. David sees something in him. And David says, you're the man. I want you to be the chief to guide the critical aspects of worship around the ark. That is a major promotion for a worship leader. Okay. He got, he got the big position. This is great. From that position, something began to wear down inside of him. Was it the, the, Sabbath, the, the Sabbath to Sabbath grind? Was it the holidays? The, the, the high and holy holidays? You know, What's that? Christmas seasons. The, the Christmas seasons are so hard in Israel right now. You know, what, what happened? Because he kind of had it all in a way in terms of getting the elite staff position. He got it. What a position of honor picked by the king himself, handpicked. And scholars suggest that um, he had a crisis of faith. He's not using rhetoric. He's given his testimony. And he began to think, you know what? All this stuff I'm doing, I'm making sure that the singers get it right and, and they bang the cymbals at the right time and the, and the guitar, all the stuff that's going on, that it really is something that would be considered our best. Is it a hint at burnout, worn out, that might lead to burnout? You know, what is it? Um, if it's rhetoric, patch then then we'd want to kind of pull all that in a little bit but if he's really saying hey this is me this is my story then then Asaph had a real crisis of faith yeah I'm trying not to look at it through a 21st century lens because to me this this would sound sarcastic look what all I've done and it's for God yeah right I kept my heart pure and you'd almost be it's either self-mocking or arrogance that comes from that but thinking from a first century world I think it's as you're describing it, it sounds almost like a, a, a spiritual, emotional exhale. Like, I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. Yeah, yeah. And all for God. Yeah, yeah. I think he's confessing. Now remember, if you have a two-dimensional view of morality, what does it say? Why am I not being blessed? For Job. Yeah, in fact, um, Justin, they say the Job story and Psalm 37 are all um, shared with Psalm 73. This idea of why do good people have bad things happen to them? And uh, if you're like me, I don't necessarily have the most well-developed theology of suffering. <laughs> Here's my basic theology of suffering. I don't like it. <laughs> and I don't want any, I want it to stop. There's my theology of suffering, right? I want my, I want it my way, you know. Bless me. And so, so Patch, what's going on? Is it burnout? Is it worn out? Um, and by the way, uh, this is interesting. There are people in very low positions who are the, the common laborer who can look at be and be jealous, right? They compare and be jealous. Well, you know, I'm in my ragged out, worn out, cruddy Camry and, and look at what they're driving, you know? So you get people on the low end of society 
saying, wow, they got it easy. They're not working as hard as I am. But you've got the flip of that. You can have people in very high positions who look and say, this, this whole blessing the right people thing is still off. It's still not right. God is not running the universe the way I think it should be run. The 613 laws are still in effect. And they're still in effect. So he's trying to keep all 613 laws. And yes. Hey, God, what's going on? Verse 14, I have been stricken all day long and punished every morning. That doesn't sound like a a real happy kind of day. And it's emphatic that this is happening in in a repeated pattern. Uh, Again, we don't know if these are relationship problems. You know, artists are pretty moody people. We don't know if the, the guitar players can't get along with the drummer and, and, and you know, what it is. It personality conflicts, but, but whatever it is, he feels like he's being stricken and he's being punished. So is verse 15 his way of kind of saying how he can't say these things out loud? Yes. Yes. Has to feel isolated, yeah. And in fact, the word for betrayal here is uh, just in, in all your, your guidance here in Hebrew would be really helpful. It's actually a pretty strong term in Hebrew and can even um, describe harsh divorce. To betray, um, it, it's, it's really strong language. The idea is we're doing damage. Yeah. I would damage the generation of your children if I really told them how I felt. But God, I think you're not necessarily doing a good job around the universe. Yeah. Which is interesting because where do we go as Christians with our doubts and our struggles? And, you know, would you want Carson to know that sometimes you struggle with a doubt? And, you know, here you're trying to teach Carson the basics of faith, you know, and we're trying to do that with Caroline and, and the grandkids and, and all those things. And uh, uh, it, this is powerful language here. Pastor, this is Janice. Hey, Janice. So, verse 14, which says, for I've been stricken all day long and punished every morning. I mean, <laughs> honestly, that one speaks to me on a very physical level. Oh, well, sure. Because I'm pain all day and every morning I wake up I think oh lord do I have to do this again is it going to be that hard again mm-hmm. and I don't know that that's in the right context but I do feel like that <laughs> a lot of days you know? sure yeah you have chronic pain back injuries your neck and all those things yeah and and it's very very true Janice that that people who experience chronic unrelenting pain will mentally break down. Depression sits in, anxiety. It's exhausting to manage pain. Any, any well, MD will know that. I trust God that he's not going to let me break down. Yeah. But I do right. feel like that many days, it's like, oh my goodness, yesterday was hard, and then I get up in the morning and I can barely stand up straight until I get my joints moving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely so. Let's look at this next slide, verse 17. 
Something happens, though, when he goes to the sanctuary. Something clicks. We're not sure exactly what it was. Maybe he saw the ark. But maybe he looked at the ark this time like he'd never seen it before. Maybe it was something about the architecture. Maybe he heard a prophetic word. Maybe, maybe it was a song that he had written himself. He heard being something we don't know. But whatever it was, he had insight and he perceived their end. You indeed put them on slippery ground. You drop them into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, Lord, when stirred, you will despise their image. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was stupid and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. By the way, that sounds like some pretty self, the language of self-loathing. I'm stupid, I'm ignorant, I'm as dumb as an animal. I'm as dumb as a donkey or something. Okay, all right, I, I get it, I get it. You wanna be careful with that. What's interesting is that when he finally has resolution, he no longer sees himself on those terms. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Uh, Pats, this is where we see the grace of God. In the middle of all the doubts, to the point that he believed, you know what, if I really told my family what I thought, it would break their hearts how I struggle with God in this, this thing of inspiring people to worship. If they really knew how I doubted, I would hurt this generation. Meanwhile, God is holding his hand. <laughs> so there's a grace room. You will guide me with your plan and afterward receive me to glory. The guy who didn't keep all the rules, Terry. <laughs> and then it clicks. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And with you, I desire nothing on earth. <clears throat> my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is good. It's good for me, Tov. I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I may tell of all your works. By the way, Joshua 18 is a fascinating text. Excuse me, I've got a cough. <clears throat> a fascinating text that deals with how God is going to parcel out and assign the land of Israel. And they're going to do it by the casting of lots. All right. And the idea behind casting lots is that God is the one that assigns a portion of ground. And so when he says, you are my portion, He's saying, you are the gift of, you are my allotted land. You are that thing that I will inherit. So it's beautiful language from an Israeli perspective. 
Uh, I love the, the resolution as for me. The nearness of God, Kedavah, is my good. Beautiful language. All right, so let's, let's look at some observations. Um, remember, Asaph name means to gather. A relative appointed Asaph to serve as a singer and a musician, specifically who plays sounds of joy. David promoted Asaph as the chief of those appointed as ministers before the ark of the Lord. At some point in his career, he became disillusioned with his faith and with his God, somehow, that is Elohim. While focusing on the lifestyle of the wicked, he says nothing about God. When he focuses on God, he doesn't say anything about the wicked. A proper understanding of the wicked clarifies the nature of God. A proper understanding of God clarifies the nature of people. Doubts and disillusionment may have a horrifically negative impact on future generations. Asaph doubted God. God didn't doubt Asaph. God held him even in the middle of his doubts. So, so here's that beautiful question for all of us. Um, how does Psalm 73 impact us today? What encouragement can we derive knowing that we don't turn to an ark for intimacy with God? We turn to Jesus, and it changes everything. What are your thoughts <clears throat> applying Psalm 73 to us today? Chris, I like the part about while focusing on the lifestyle of the wicked, he says nothing about God. And while focusing on God, he says nothing about the wicked. To me, what that says is we need to be focused on God. And like you and I have talked about love covers a multitude of sins. So if we are loving our neighbor as ourselves, we are covering their sin in the fact that, you know, we're focusing on God and God loves all of us. And we need to love others as we love God. It changes everything, Janice. <clears throat> Amen. Yeah, it really does. This passage, this song, also speaks to the fact that there will always be those that perceptively are doing better than we are. Mm -hmm. And that Asaph, in his high position, whether he was burnt by something amazing happens to us. And 
you will also have bad things happen to us because the rain falls on the sinner and the saint. Yeah. And if we just kind of lock into the fact that God's nearness, that he is our portion, that we have latched ourselves onto his goodness, Asaph teaches us that that's all we need. And that really is. I mean, we could be, that could be rhetorical, it could be poetic, I mean, it's a poem, for goodness sake, but it's real. It's very much a real thing. God's goodness is all we need. Yeah. If we yeah. understand what need is, because he transcends money and comfort and power and uh, convenience mm. and gratification. Mm. And I think contrasted with what he sees early in the, in the psalm, we understand that. Because God's goodness isn't a fix for the wickedness. No, the wicked are still going to be wicked. They're still going to get fat and get rich. He never mentions that God uh, is part of that necessarily. I think what I'm encouraged by is that last section, that he yeah. he settled in his heart. That's what matters. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, for me, what I want to continuously remind myself. That's really, that really is what matters. God's nearness. I, it was profound when you said, I really don't have to have the ark. I don't have to have the staff position. I don't have to have these key markers that, that we socially would use to say, wow, look at me. I, I'm really, really, you know, I've got it good. No. Uh, as tempting as it would be to be near the ark, wouldn't you like to lift the cover and see what's inside? See Aaron's rod that budded? See the tablets? Can you imagine? Talk about the ultimate symbols of Israeli faith. Uh, of course, we also know the stories of, of what happens when you touch the earth. But boy, to be near it, wow. But it says I need to be near God. So. The other thing, Chris, that I am looking at is your point number nine about doubts and, <clears throat> doubts and disillusionment may have a horrifically negative impact on future generations. Mm -hmm. And I do think that we each and every one of us as Christians have a responsibility to reflect the nature of Christ. And I know I've failed in this area recently, but it does have a horrifically negative impact on future generations. And it reminds me of the verse that the sins of the father are visited on the sons and the sons of the sons for I don't know how many generations. Mm -hmm. So it is super important for us to live a moral and Christ-following life mm -hmm. for our future generations. Yes. What's interesting though is that this isn't this isn't Asaph's personal journal. It's a song to be sung in worship. A nation. So this is an appropriate way to talk about your doubts. In some level. It's it's what? It's an appropriate way to talk about his doubts. Yeah. Because he's talking to God about them. <clears throat> and he's processing his doubts with God. And he's, in doing so, he's allowing other people to join in. And that's a gift. Yes, yes. This is a permission, spiritual permission to be frustrated. Yes, yes. 
had, um, I got stuck on thinking about exactly what it would mean to walk into the sanctuary, and then I started imagining it, and that what he's describing is that he comes to a point of faith through this very concrete experience, and it made, I don't know, that, uh, it makes sense to me that he would go into the sanctuary of God, it's the tabernacle, which the instructions were given to them by Moses. People built it, like they weren't, you know, parts of it would be renewed, but he was going into a place that people before him had formed and fashioned and the rituals that were carried out there had been done a long time. And he knew the history of the people of faith and the people who doubted. So he's walking into that, and he's walking into someplace beautiful, and so he there's this awe and reverence that comes, and then all of the history of the people. And when he's surrounded by that, then he can say, okay, I, I see their end now. And I don't think that, he experienced that within this physical space, and he experienced that within this tradition. So it's it's the tradition that allows him to have a new vision. And he cares about that, which is why he wants to make sure that he's not damaging the generations behind him, because he's coming into something that's been given to him by other people. So we, so, I got stuck there, so it was very, it was, and I was just imagining that very fully, so it was really surprising when I was hearing Janice and Patch talk about that we could just go to God and just imagine it, because that's not what Asaph was doing at all. He was having a physical, concrete experience within tradition. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. where, where is do we have that, or is it just all imaginative for us? <clears throat> we imagine that we're near God. Right. Or, or, it's both. A physical object pointed a sap to God. In other words, um, he, look, he looks at the temporal, or look at all these wicked people, they got a good. I'm living this holy, clean life, and I've got it hard. God's not fair. <clears throat> That's a very temporal perspective. When he goes inside the temple, he sees symbolic uh, architecture, pomegranates, we're assuming, all kinds of things. We really don't know how ornate it was. We, we don't fully know. Remember that the temple is not like... He's going into the tabernacle, right? Because the temple hasn't been right. built. What, what I'm saying, right. Let's, this, there's a difference between the temple and the tabernacle, so we don't know what degrees of, of ornate you know, architecture there. With the tabernacle, we do get a lot of descriptors. Pomegranates and things hammered out with it, all these precious metals and weaving and all these things. But it's those objects that he, ah, this is about something eternal. And it's almost like Andrea, that his mind perceives the physical material thing of the, of the architecture, of the, of the accoutrements of this beautiful building, and pop. It goes straight to God. So it's both. It's not an either-or dynamic. Um, he gets, he shifts from the temporal to the eternal. Who have I in heaven but you? And as far as stuff goes on earth, I don't need it. So it's interesting. He looks at a concrete object on earth that reminds him of God's 
heals his brain and says, oh, by the way, I don't need that stuff on earth. So there's some, some irony in that. So do people it's both. Need concrete things, but <clears throat> exactly, exactly. And so, for example, this timber, this big, strong timber, how could that point us to God? cross. What about the tree that grew that was harvested and cut up into these big, big open timbers? God grew the tree. Right. What about the permanence of concrete and, and things? That which is sturdy. And so, yeah, we, so it's actually good to do this and when you read Psalm 121 you get those very ideas. Let's develop this. Chris, yes, sir. I just said, I don't know if this is a weird way of looking at this too, but I think it's fascinating that Aesop's name means together. Here is a song of him. He's, he's, he's singing this out, telling others that believe in God, this is my doubts. I'm you. You are me. And you come to, you come together, you come to God anyways. You don't go away from God. And I just think it's neat that his name kind of goes along with not just the fact that if it means the gathering, the gather of people and the mute and the singing that, but to me it also means to gather close to God even when you do have your, your crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. That's so good, David. Yes, yes. Let me share this with you on a practical level. Um, shame is a very powerful force in our lives. Shame. And... Uh, there is a real temptation when we experience shame to withdraw and hide and to bury it and keep it to ourselves. Uh, If we share our junk, we share our problems, then we risk increasing our shame, our level of shame, right? So these are very, very real matters. Now, can you imagine being the chief leader of worship in Israel and you had doubts um, where do you go with that? He writes it in a song, certainly, and uh, hints at it, but what do, we do, what do we do with our shame? What do we do with our doubts? Um, I want to tell you that in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that through Jesus, we can come boldly to the throne of grace without shame pushing us away from God. We can take our debts to him. And that is when we become like children. Does that make sense? It's okay to take our struggles of this life that we're living in or even our struggles of God himself and take them to God and say, God, I struggle with you. I don't just struggle with life. I struggle with you. It's okay to do that. Uh, we have to be careful with shame because that's the very thing that's going to push us away from God. Yeah. Pastor? Yes? Don't you, I mean, I think a lot of times people get caught up in the fact that I need to clean up before I go to God. Yes. And I think that is <clears throat> absolutely backwards. We cannot clean up before we go to God. Mm. I think that we have to come to God with all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our sorrow and then God will heal us. Yes, yes. That is so good, Janice. Yes. Yes. There is a... This song means 
it's very personal to me. Mm-hmm. It was about six years ago, I had my own crisis of faith. I was going through a lot of stuff. This was before I kind of dealt with my own depression. And I, I came to a point, I had a, what I called my outburst. Christian, I kind of when we talked about it. And I remember specifically, I was so mad at everything. And I was saying things like, this is the abundant life. I don't want it. I remember that. And we were getting in my car three in the morning, going for a quick drive. And I remember specifically saying, God, if you're real. You need to prove it to me. So this is me asking God to prove himself. <laughs> the irony of that is just amazing. It's thick. And when he didn't do what I wanted after <laughs> 10 minutes, I gave him some kind of stupid ultimatum. I cursed him. I said, you. But what was interesting is that I'm still talking to the guy. I'm still talking to my creator, telling him, I don't acknowledge you anymore. And I, and I remember coming back to this song as I was sort of coming out of that. And I said, that's exactly what I was feeling. Not that I was jealous of the wicked, not that I was, but life was like, this is terrible. And in that moment, over the course of several days as I was wrestling with that, God said, I want you to give me that. I want Mm -hmm. you to allow yourself to be mad and keep telling me that. Because the fact that you are telling me that, telling me that you hate me, telling me to go away, telling me that you don't want to have anything to do with me is a confession that you recognize I am here. <laughs> yes. And, and it was just, it was this beautiful mess of a, yeah. of, a, of a moment that I was in where I was like, okay. And, and I felt such a, such a, an exhaustive relief saying, wow, I have permission to yell at God. I have permission to tell him how frustrated I am with this and that and him. Yeah. Because he knows my heart. He knows that I'm intricately and wonderfully made enough to say, I know that. Wow. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mm. And I felt that rest over the course of several days and weeks. It didn't take away. I mean, the, the wicked were still there. People were still getting fat. <laughs> yeah. But it changed my perspective on saying, that doesn't matter. Yeah. And, I'm, and, and I honestly, I said, life sucks right now, but I'm okay saying that. Because yeah. it's an honest thing. Yeah. However, God's nearness is what I needed. Yeah. And that, that song came in such a, such a wonderful moment because I was like, oh, somebody else gets me. <laughs> ASAP gets me. It was, yeah. it was wonderful. I understood that. And reading that, I completely understood that. That is so good, Patch. Thank you. Um, Patch, that's awesome. Yes, it absolutely is, David. It is. Patch, um, when when we believe God can be our safe place, it's typical that we tend to become a safe place for others. And relationships take on a whole new turn, a whole new level of meaning. And it's okay. Could you please repeat that? Repeat that. Yeah, when, when we realize that God is a safe place, even in our sin, even in our doubt, in our struggles, when he becomes our safe place and we can go running to him with all the forms 
of our doubts and dysfunction and, and all of that and find grace and healing and repentance and all those things, we can become a, same, a safe place for our friends and our family. But if we are cloaked in shame and fighting against ourselves and our humanity, we can become very difficult to live with. Very difficult. Chris, in verse 2, he starts out and says, I'm close to stumbling and I almost slipped. <clears throat> and then goes on to explain why. Yeah, yeah. And by your goodness, I didn't slip and I didn't stumble. Yeah. So it's a circular route that comes back to faith. Yes. Yes. It is Terry, yes. Yes. A lot of circular routes that we can go through. <laughs> yes, that's so good. So everyone, please be encouraged that you can bring your humanity to your creator <laughs> who created you as a human. You can bring your humanity to him, all the positive emotions, all the negative emotions, fears, anxiety, uh, doubts, all those things. I heard someone say humorously years and years ago, that God doesn't believe in atheists. And I, I really enjoyed that at first. I went, what? And then, and then it made me grin. And I go, that's true. He doesn't. He doesn't believe in atheists. It's a funny way of saying God believes in people, even those who refuse to acknowledge him. And he is ever the one just doing global missions trying to draw all men to himself, trying to do that. So uh, 2 Peter 3.9, he doesn't want anybody to perish at all. So God is ever the one seeking out uh, people. So, wow. To be able to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you've been raised up with Christ, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As for me, I've settled this one. It's done. The nearness of God is my good. And I've made the Lord God my refuge. Wow, safe place that I may tell of your works. Ah, that's what our kids need to hear. The next generation needs to hear of the great works. Do they need to understand that we struggle? Absolutely. <clears throat> but there are some things, Patch, I know you know this, and we all do, we're all adults. There's some things you don't, you don't put on the shoulders of a child. It's too much, it's too much, so. All right, I want to read from Luke's tradition. <clears throat> Luke says, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way he took the cup also after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Beautiful. Let me pray. Abba Father, there is one mediator between you and people, the man Jesus Christ, your son. And through him we have access to you. He's transferred us from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of your son. This has been accomplished by you. And the bread and the cup are an earthly reminder of a heavenly reality. Thank you. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Thank you for being our safe place, even in our doubts. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Let's take the Lord's Supper together.